Today's reading is from Romans 8, verses 1 to 17. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us, who do not live according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death uh, because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For, it, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you received does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you received brought you out from your adoption to sonship. And by him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. James for reading now, and this is God's word to us this morning. And before Phil comes and explains that passage to us, let's pray as we open God's word. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are not silent, but you've given us your word and you speak to us today through it. And we pray that as we spend time looking at your word, as we hear what Phil has to say from as he explains this passage, we pray that our hearts uh, would be drawn closer to you as a result. We pray that we may love you more as a result of this time spent in your word this morning. And we pray for Phil, we pray that you would strengthen and equip him now with everything he needs to do uh, to explain and to bring your words to us. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks, Dan. 
if you could have your Bibles open to that, cha- that, uh, that chapter, Romans 8, we're going to look at those verses now. So last week we looked at, at Romans chapter 7, where Paul describes uh, the tension that each Christian lives in daily. That tension between the desire of the sinful nature and the spirit of Christ who has now come to live in us. And Paul describes it well in, in Romans chapter 7, 22, that we looked at last week. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law. But I see another law at work in me, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin at work within me. So if Romans 7 is about the wrestle that Christians have with indwelling sin and the remarkable way that Jesus rescues us from the slavery of sin then Romans 8 carries on by telling us how we can live in the freedom of Christ's work by the Holy Spirit. Let me just illustrate that. In the American Civil War, Abraham Lincoln made a speech that marked the beginning of the end of the war and the intention to free all the slaves in America. It was called the Gettysburg Address, and one of the consequences of that speech was that the North... The Union North was then inundated with a flood of escaped slaves from the Confederate South who were desperate to have their freedom and live it out even before the war ended. And many of them volunteered for the Union Army. And they did that because they were not content with just getting their freedom, but they were determined to fight against the tyranny of the Southern Confederate States that had held them in slavery for so long. They'd arrived in a nation that had declared them free, and then they turned to fight against the cause that had enslaved them. And that's a good picture of the life that Christ has freed us into. You see, like those slaves that joined the Union Army, Christ calls us not simply to sit back on our our freedom and enjoy it, but he calls us to join the fight against the sin that once held us in such brutal tyranny. And in that way, Romans 8 begins a section of the book which is all about living out the freedom of Christ, teaching us how to fight sin and live in real life that is in the Spirit. So in the same way, those slaves who had volunteered for the Union Army had to go through boot camp to learn their soldiering and how to fight, so Romans 8 to 16 teaches us how to fight our old master sin. In a way... These chapters are the Bible boot camp of how to fight the war effectively. And we need to read these chapters again and again and again because of that lesson they teach us. Because they teach us to live the Christian gospel to the max. To be Christians who live in freedom from the slavery of sin. And be Christians who fight by the power of God the Holy Spirit for the glory of God of God the Father. And the first thing that Paul wants us to understand uh, in this chapter is, uh, is, is the glory of our salvation. And that's our first point uh, this morning, understand our salvation. That's why he starts with one of the most glorious statements in the Bible, Romans 8, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Because 
Through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. The starting point to living the gospel rightly is to understand the completeness of our salvation. Because if we don't understand the completeness of our salvation, we will lack assurance. We will not have that complete conviction that we belong to God and he will lead us home in spite of ourselves. For example, many Christians today still wonder whether they will be right with God on the day of judgment. Others believe that they can lose their salvation if they don't behave properly. So verse 1 reads for them that there is no condemnation unless I've done something really bad. Or or some have said, I've said the prayer, I'm hoping that will be enough. I'm not sure though. But let me tell you this, if you understand verse 1 properly, then you will have a complete confidence that there is no condemnation now, even, the, even in the midst of dealing with the daily struggle of sin. You will have a complete confidence that when we die, the loving arms of God will greet us as a child finally come home. That's what no condemnation is. And Paul wants us to see that this is a great culmination of of the consequences of what Jesus has done on the cross. And that's why he explains it in verse 2. It's a kind of summary explanation. He says this in verse 2, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit, or the the rule of the Spirit, in in Christ's kingdom as, uh, as, as he rules over us, has set you free from the law or the rule of sin and death. And that's his explanation as to why there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It's because what the law could not do, that is save us, Jesus Christ has done by the power of God the Holy Spirit. It's a phenomenal summary statement. It's a phenomenal explanation of all that Paul has been going on about in Romans 5, 6, and 7. But he doesn't just drop the mic at this moment and move on. No, he goes on to reveal the truth that is too amazing not to explore. It's why the rest of the chapter is a longer explanation of these two verses. So look at verse 3 and 4 with me. For what the law was powerless to do, because it was weakened by the flesh... God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh. What we need to see is that whereas the law could only expose sin for what it was, God in his plan of salvation sent Jesus to actually deal with sin. So Jesus lived in this world that was dominated by the rule of sin. And when the right time came, he gave himself to become a sin offering on our behalf. The law could not do that. In that sense, the law could only condemn and never save. And in dying on the cross to take the punishment of of sin in our place, Jesus destroys the power of sin over us. Jesus literally condemns the power of condemning sin. Isn't that amazing? And so the consequence comes in verse 4. So he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live according to the flesh but according to the spirit. So the righteous requirement of the law is that as a rebel against God, the sinner, you and I, deserve to die. 
we must die. That's the requirement of the law. But for the Christian, that requirement has been met by Jesus Christ dying on the cross. And this is what will happen on the day of judgment. We will die and we will stand before God. And he will call us to account. And we will point to Jesus. And we will say to God, Lord God, almighty heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, God the Son, has died for me. He is my substitute. He is my representative. He has done all that the righteous requirement of the law has demanded and has declared me righteous too. That's why Christians can be confident that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're a Christian listening in this morning, if you've accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you're living with him as Lord over your life, then salvation must never be in doubt. Why? Because what reason do you have to doubt? Jesus has done the work. He's fulfilled all the law that, all, all that the law has demanded. Not us, not anyone else. Jesus has taken the condemnation of the law for us and, and died for us. We are saved because of his work and his power. We stand totally justified before God. And I don't know whether you've seen salvation security in this way before, but if it, if it is for the first time, then rejoice in the freedom of the completeness of your salvation. Revel in the comfort that Christ has secured for your eternal hope. And enjoy the fact that nothing will take you away from the love of God, not even your sin. Now, now I realize we've spent a long time looking at these first four verses, but they provide that foundation, no condemnation. They're the great truths that the rest of this chapter is built on. And and I promise our next two points will be a, a bit shorter. But the reality is, unless we know how secure our salvation is, we will not be able to live in the light of that security. Because either we'll be trapped in, 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 the, in the trap of legalism, judging ourselves and others by the standard of the law that Christ has fulfilled, or we'll be caught in the trap of relativism, thinking that because Christ has dealt with the law, the law doesn't matter anymore. But if we understand our salvation correctly and rightly and, 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 and uh, reverently, then actually we have the right foundation to build our lives on, lives that are lived in the Spirit, by the Spirit, for the glory of God. How do we do that? Well, that brings us to our second point. Our second point is live life in the Spirit. Live life in the Spirit. When verses 5 to 9 speak of the mind, it means a a person's whole way of thinking, their their entire worldview, the way they view life, the way they live life. So look at what Paul says about the worldview of the non-Christian and its consequences in these verses. Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh have their minds, their worldview, set on what the flesh desires. Verse 6, the mind governed by the flesh is death. 
Verse 7, the mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. So the worldview of the non-Christian is opposed to God and his law. And that comes in many forms, and often with seemingly good reasons. But fundamentally, the Christian lives with a worldview that does not have God at the center of it. And uh, can I just say that's not judgmentalism, that's simply the observation. That's simply what the Bible says here. And it's the truth, isn't it? If God is not at the center of our worldview, then we cannot be called Christians. But look at how Paul describes the worldview that Christians enjoy. Those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. Verse 6 the second half of verse 6, the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. That worldview is life and peace. Verse 9, you are, however, not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God lives in you. The Holy Spirit frees those who trust in Jesus from the rule of sin. It's a point that Paul's been making for the last couple of chapters. Before we were Christians, we had no power over sin. We were slaves to the rule of sin and dead to the rule of Jesus. But now that we have been saved from that rule by the power of Jesus and the infilling of the Holy Spirit, he's changed our legal status and he's changed our worldview as well. So our minds our lives, our hearts, our every being is governed by desiring God's ways. It's a bit like those former slaves who had become volunteer union soldiers. Once they'd been slaves to the Confederacy, but now, as they learned the ways of fighting for the Union Army and for an end to slavery, their call was to defeat the Confederacy. And there was no way they would serve the Confederacy again. And you can imagine what was going through their minds as they were lining up on the battlefield against their former masters. There in front of them were the white men who had once totally ruled over every aspect of their lives. And as they raised their rifles, dare they pull the trigger. Dare they march in opposition against them. And maybe there were moments when their old way of thinking made them doubt that they had the power and authority to defy those who once enslaved them. But then they would have looked at the blue of the uniform they were wearing, at the commanders who were leading them into battle, and remember that they belonged now to a new nation. They were free from the tyranny that had once enslaved them, and they were free to fight and to fight with their whole hearts. It's an amazing picture of the Christian worldview. We have been given a new status. We have been given a new mindset. We are now free to revel in the power over sin that Christ's death has won for us. We can pull the trigger on sin. Why? Because his spirit clothes us. Our savior leads us, leads, leads us. And they transform our minds and our world views. So when the flesh and the world and the devil draw up their battle, battle lines against us and we fear being overwhelmed by the sin that once enslaved us, we look to our Saviour's victory on the cross 
and his victory at the empty tomb. And we know that we are free from the tyranny of sin. And the Bible doesn't say here that life in the Spirit means life without sin. Life in the Spirit means that when we sin, we so understand his work of salvation that we take our failures to him and seek his forgiveness and his strength to repent and walk with him by faith. And let me just set the record straight as well. I've heard many times people say that Oak Hall Church doesn't believe in the Holy Spirit or or that perhaps we're not spirit-filled. Don't let that kind of comment lead you to believe there's somehow a better experience of the Spirit that we're missing out on. Instead, ask the question, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Have people been raised from the dead in the last year at Oak Hall Church? Or through the ministry of Oak Hall Church? Absolutely. Young and old have come to know Christ through the ministries of, of our children's work, of our, of our one-to-one work in the last year so that people have been raised from death to life? Have broken people been made whole by the power of the Holy Spirit through the ministries of Oak Hall Church? Yes. Have miserly people become generous? Have angry people become peaceful? Has hev- have, he- have hesitant Christians become confident? Have desperate prayers been answered? And has Jesus Christ been proclaimed at work, at home, on street corners and in the pubs by the power of the Holy Spirit in people at Oak Hall Church? Yes. And we may not recognize it. You may not feel that as you sit down next to your, your friend at college or, or your colleague at work and, and talk to them about Jesus and feel you've done an absolutely poor job of it, that that is the Holy Spirit at work in you. But it is. And when we look at the Bible here, what does the Bible say about walking in the Spirit, about being a Spirit-filled Christian? It says that we walk in the Spirit by enjoying His power in us to make us more like Jesus and to proclaim Jesus daily in that. That is what it is to walk in the Spirit. And my brothers and sisters, here is the truth and here is the joy And here is the power in us. God the Holy Spirit in us is making us daily more like Jesus. Therefore, let us put to death our sin. Therefore, Let's be bold in the truth that we long to follow Jesus and proclaim him. That is what it is to walk in the Spirit. Be confident in that. Be confident in that. Rejoice in that. Walk in that. Do you know, our last point that we're looking at this morning is that hope as a Christian comes because we focus rightly on life in eternity. And that's my last point. Focus rightly on life in eternity. Look at verse 10 and 11 with me. But if Christ is in you, 
then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. In other words, everyone deteriorates and then dies physically. Whether a Christian or not, that's in store for all of us. And Christians are subject to the ravages of disease, old age, violence and disaster like everybody else. That is life in this world. However, although we will one day die physically, the truth here is that we will also physically rise from the dead, just like Jesus did. But at the same time, verse 10 says it all. You just need to look at the footnote to see, and and that's probably a better translation, your spirit is alive. So when we become Christians and submit to Jesus as Lord and Savior, that is the moment that we are saved in eternity. Our souls are alive to God and our eternal relationship begins with him. And that relationship will never end. We have crossed over from death to life from that point. So because Christ saves us into an eternal life which starts now, it has a bearing on how we live now. So things we once lived for are now not as precious because we know they're not going to be in eternity. The priorities we once had when we were slaves to sin are now seen from a different angle. What we pray for our children changes. As non-Christians, we would, would secretly hope our children would enjoy health, wealth, and happiness. But now our greatest prayer for them is that they know and love the living Lord Jesus for themselves. Where once we feared death as the great unknown, and now, how, however painful the reality might be, we know that death will be swallowed up in victory when we see Jesus. And we don't have time to really explore the last few verses, but they're the point that Paul goes off on one about the spirit-filled life. Let me read verse 15 to 17 uh, with you. And just revel in these truths. Really revel in them. We've laid that foundation, haven't we? No condemnation. We build in that in life in the spirit. We have hope, hope in eternity. And here is, the, here is the high point. The spirit you received does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. That fear is gone, isn't it? Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship. And by him, the spirit, we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we might also share in his glory. When the Holy Spirit comes to live with us, we have this absolute security that nothing can take us away from Christ. When the Holy Spirit comes to live with us, God becomes our loving Father. We turn to him and we say, Abba, Father, It's a new relationship. It's a deep relationship. It's an intimately joyful, loving relationship that cannot be taken away. We are his children. 
We are his heirs, co-heirs with Christ. We have been elevated to a status that we could not comprehend in, in, in our wildest dreams. We inherit the riches of his glory. We look forward to an eternity in that status, in that relationship forever and ever and ever. And therefore, what is death? It's the, great, it's the gateway to glory. And for now, we live today secure in the knowledge that our eternal happiness is assured. It means that we can make tough choices and we can handle hardships. And the end of verse 17 tells us we will be sharing in Christ's sufferings. But we can endure it knowing that there is a glorious light that we anticipate when we pass from this glory into the glory to come. God the Holy Spirit assures us there's no condemnation. He leads us in life. He fills us with hope. And what hope we do have because one day, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will look into the very eyes of Jesus and know that he smiles. Let me pray. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we worship you and praise you for these great truths that we've looked at this morning. We praise you that the foundation of these truths is that there is no condemnation. The foundations of these truths are the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and nothing else. Not our effort, not our, our, our attempts at pleasing you, but the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and his work on the cross and the empty tomb. We praise you that you fill us with your Holy Spirit when we, uh, when we uh, uh, submit to your rule and invite your salvation. We praise you, Lord God, that the Holy Spirit leads us in life and gives us hope in death. We praise you, Lord God, that you have done this and we are filled with joy. Lord, please help us to walk in the Spirit to see that you lead us and guide us and fight in the fight against sin. And in that daily, daily, daily progression to become more Christ-like in our family relationships, in our work relationships, even with those we struggle with. Lord God, we praise you that you are working on us to make us more like you till we see you in glory. Thank you for this passage. Thank you for your word. Lord God, it is so challenging, but so thrilling too. We worship you for who you are. Amen.